Well, it's really nice to be with you again today. I always enjoy coming uh, to Moody'sburn. I think it's one of the most exciting churches that I get a chance to come to. Um, and so it's a real pleasure to be with you again today. I think this is the first time I've been at a morning service. And uh, so that, that's nice to see how things are in the morning. Um, I hope that you have a really good time with Gordon and the team that take part in the mission that's about to unfold. I hope that, trust and pray that God blesses that and you're really encouraged. I want to read from the Bible from Acts chapter 11. I thought what I'd do today is just look at two um, churches in the book of Acts. So that's what I want to do tonight. I want to look at one a little bit later on in the book of Acts and Today, this morning, I want to look at one here in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So I'm going to read from Acts 11 verse 19 to the end of the chapter. And then I'll read a few verses from Acts chapter 13. um, Just the first couple of verses of that. So it's really all about the church at Antioch. And this is what the Bible says. Acts... um, So you find the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then of course you've got Acts. And we're at chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, that's in Jerusalem, uh, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And then just popping over to chapter 13, I want to read the first few verses. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas... Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. (coughs) While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, 
The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So uh, we'll end there at the beginning of verse 4. Just a quick prayer. We ask God to help us. Lord, we pray for your help. The Holy Spirit is really the only infallible interpreter of Scripture, and we desperately need his help as we try to make sense of these verses that we've read today, and as we try to understand their significance for our lives in the 21st century. So we ask, Lord, for the help of the Spirit, and we pray that you will come and speak to us from the pages of this special book that you've given to us, to guide us and direct us and encourage us and bless us. Minister to us, Lord, in the way that only you can. Speak quietly into each of our hearts. And, Lord, help every one of us to just leave here with a deep-seated sense that Somehow, mysteriously, God was here and God spoke to us and blessed us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've probably heard uh, the followers of Jesus referred to um, with the use of all kinds of interesting names. Over the years, I've heard these followers of Jesus called all kinds of interesting things. I remember listening to a conversation They had no idea who I was or what I did. And and I was listening to this conversation between two ladies and they were talking about these Christians as if they were the worst people on the face of the earth. And uh, one of the ladies said to the other lady, and the worst kind are these folks that talk about being born again. It was an interesting conversation to uh, listen to. The name that has clung to the followers of Jesus down through the centuries is the name Christian. It's a Greek term, it has a Latin ending, and it just means Christ's ones. The people that belong to Christ. And it was first used in the city of Antioch, here in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we're told that these followers of Jesus were first called Christians. In Antioch, that's where they were called Christians for the first time. Um, I I think it was originally a name that the people of Antioch came up with by themselves. And a name which they felt would be appropriate to give to these followers of Jesus. They felt, you know, we should start calling these folks that follow Jesus Christians. I I don't think... Excuse me, I don't think the disciples would have come up with that name themselves. I don't think that they would have taken a name that was so clearly identified with the coming Messiah uh, that is spoken of throughout the Old Testament. I don't think that they would have taken this Old Testament holy name and applied it to themselves. I think they already, if you read the early chapters of the, uh, of the book of Acts, you'll see that they already had enough names in circulation. They were referred to things like disciples, believers, brethren, saints. All of these names were in circulation. The last thing they needed was another name. So I don't think the disciples, the followers of Jesus themselves, says, oh, we should start calling ourselves Christians. It was the people of Antioch that did. Neither do I think that the Jews decided we should call these followers. 
followers of Jesus Christians because the name Christ comes from an Old Testament word the Greek translation of it is Christos and it's basically it's referring to the coming Messiah the one that God promised would come throughout the pages of the Old Testament it's it's one of the titles that are used to speak of this coming Messiah and I don't think the Jews would have taken this Old Testament messianic term and started to use it of these followers of Jesus no, what I think happened was the people of Antioch just the ordinary Bill and Betty and John and Molly and Victor and whoever that lived in Antioch they decided we should start calling these followers of Jesus the Christ people Christ's ones. Now, I don't think the people of Antioch knew much about Christians, and I don't think they knew much about Jesus. I doubt if they had ever read the Old Testament, the people of Antioch. I, I, doubt, I wonder if they, before these people appeared on the streets of Antioch, I wonder if they'd even heard of the name Jesus. I doubt it. But what they did know was that these followers of Jesus were, were different from them. Because they worshipped the Greek goddess Daphne. And uh, there was a temple built five miles outside Antioch. And it was dedicated to the worship of this Greek goddess Daphne. And uh, the history behind the worship of the Greek goddess Daphne is fairly simple. I'll just tell you because it helps to put the thing in context. It was believed that the Greek god Apollo... Pursued, fell in love with the Greek goddess Daphne, pursued her across the face of the earth, and just as he was about to capture her, she cried out to her father, and he turned her into a bay tree so that she could escape his advances. And uh, she fell to the ground somewhere around Antioch, and a temple was built, and it was dedicated to the Greek goddess to the worship of the Greek goddess Daphne. And here is what's really interesting that every evening. Every evening, um, Apollo's chase of Daphne across the face of the earth was reenacted by the men of the city. And they would start in the center of Antioch and they would pursue or chase the sacred priestesses who worked in the temple of Daphne. They would uh, chase them the five miles out to the temple courts. And when they got there, all kinds of unimaginable sexual sensual, seedy things took place. And, and I think the people of, of Antioch, they said, well, we don't know much about this Jesus, but what we do know is that these folks are different from us. They don't want anything to do with this sensual underworld. They don't want anything to do with this chasing of these sacred priestesses. They don't want anything to do with what goes on in the temple out there in, in, in the temple courts of Daphne. They're consumed with this person that they call the Christ. They sing to him. They talk to him. They pray to him. They talk about him. You poke them and the name on their lips is this one that they call the Christ. So we should start calling these followers of Jesus the Christ's ones. Because he's the one that seems to be at the center of their lives. He's the one that they are absolutely consumed with. And I think it's, to great, it's, it's great credit to the followers of Jesus in Antioch that people decided, we're going to start calling them Christians. 
We're going to start calling them the Christ ones. Because they love this person called the Christ there. They, they sing about him. They talk to him. They talk to others. About him. He's just the center of their lives. I wonder what people are saying about you and, and me. It's a good question, isn't it? What, what do people say about you? Because they're, they're saying something about us. And uh, they notice us. And they watch us. And they observe us. And... Some people are calling us names and the last name on their lips would be Christians. Because we're anything like Christ. We're cantankerous rascals and they've got other names for us. And what are people saying about us? I heard about one lawyer who uh, was called Mr. Odd. And he hated his name. Because people would phone his office and say, Can I speak to that oddball? And he hated it. And so he left instructions. When he died, he didn't want any name on his tombstone. Don't you dare put my name on my tombstone. So he died and they put a tombstone and all they wrote on it was, Here lies an honest lawyer. People would walk into the graveyard and they would see the stone. And they would stop and look at it and say, That's odd. And on they would go. What are people saying about us? What kind of names do they use of us? I was interested read a while ago about the Methodists. The Methodists were first called Methodists because the young men who formed the Holy Club, out of which in, in somewhere like Cambridge, Oxford, Cambridge I think it was, out of which the Methodist Church sprang, were so methodical. So methodical. It's interesting to read the, the biography of a guy called Harry Ironside a while ago. Some of you might have heard of him, some of you have never heard of him. doesn't matter a great deal. But what I found really interesting was that when he traveled through China, people would, uh, he was everywhere he went to speak, he was introduced as the Yasu Yan. And my Chinese isn't very good, or my Mandarin isn't very good. But they would introduce him as the Yasu Yan, the Jesus man. Everywhere he went, now we're going to have the Jesus man speak to us. What a great thing to be known as the Jesus man, or the Jesus woman. Because Jesus is at the center of what you believe, and how you behave, and who you talk about, and when you pray, the Jesus people. I long that we would be known as the Jesus people. Well, that's what happened in Antioch. People started to call these followers of Jesus the Christ's ones. Because there was just something different about them. And the thing that was different was this person that they called the Christ. Now I've got four very quick things that I want to try and lift out of this uh, passage that we've read. So I'll be as quick as I can. And you can all start to throw stuff at me when I've gone on too long. Four things. One, this church in Antioch had an exciting beginning. That's the first thing. Second thing is they had an encouraging visitor. The third thing is that they had a dynamic leadership. And the fourth thing is that they had an outward vision. So those are the four things I want to camp on. And I'll try and be as quick as I can. Um, Don't be too discouraged if I spend a little longer on the first point. When I get on a bit, it'll get quicker. So please, don't worry about that. First of all, an exciting beginning. Antioch. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. I think it really helps. It was founded by a man called Seleucius. He was one of the generals of a man called Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdom, which spanned from Greece to India, Persia, uh, and his kingdom was divided amongst four generals, and one of them was a man called Seleucius. And one day Seleucius got up and said, I'm going to start a new city. 
And he founded the city of Antioch. And it was on the banks of the, of the Orontes River. It was about sort of 8 miles, 10 miles up the coast from the, from the shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a very strategically placed city. Because it connected the silk and spice trades of the east with all of those cities around the Mediterranean basin where you go for your holidays. And it was a busy commercial place. Uh, all kinds of people living in Antioch. It was, the, it was the third largest city in the world at that point. Half a million people living in Antioch. And he attracted people to come and form the city with him because he held out the offer of equal citizenship. You come and live in my city, we'll all be equals. There'll be no slaves and free. We'll all be equals. And come they did. They came from the four corners of the world. They came from as far away as Persia. Uh, There were Greeks. There were Romans. There were Jews. Uh, A man called Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, tells us about 250,000 or 20... 25,000 Jews living in and five different cultures. Half a million people squashed together in this melting pot. Actually, not so very different from Glasgow or Edinburgh. About the same size as Edinburgh. What's the population? Glasgow is a lot bigger than Edinburgh. I know that the population of Edinburgh is about 400, 450,000, somewhere like that. So about the same size. Same kind of place. Bustling with commerce. Great place for entertainment. There was a huge hippodrome in Antioch. Where people would race these chariots and half kill themselves around this track. And people would come and watch these chariot races. So great place for entertainment. And then if you were interested in in that whole sexual, sensual side of life. There was always the, the temple of Daphne that you could get involved in. You could join the sacred priestesses of the temple. Uh, you could join the chasing of the them out to the temple court so people would come for that. It was just a busy bustling uh, exciting place to live in, in, in many senses and it was to this city that a group of men driven out from Jerusalem and their wives and their families it was to this city, this city of Antioch, half a million people third largest city in the world it was to this city that a group of people came and said we are going to start a church here We're not going to just blend in and be thermometers. You know what a thermometer is? Your mum, when you were sick and you were young, your mum stuck that thing under your tongue. And it changed with the heat of your body and she pulled it out and she could tell how hot your body was because that thing under your tongue, it just changed with your body's temperature. They said, we're not going to be thermometers. We're going to be thermostats. We are going to change the temperature in the room. We are going to come here and make an impact for Jesus. We're going to start sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. And that's exactly what they did. And I don't know how long it took them. And I don't know how they went about it. Um, Maybe they bought a shop. uh, A bookie's office. Maybe they started to just sell coffee and talk to people. Maybe they ran Christianity Explored courses. Maybe they held barbecues in in their backyards and just invited their neighbors and talked to them about Jesus. Maybe they held open air meetings where they 
just engaged people in, in, in I don't know, listen, I don't know how they, they did it, but somehow they did it. And I don't know how long it took, maybe it took a week, maybe it took three years. The truth is, I don't know how long it took, but what we are told here is that a church was founded. In the third largest city of the world that is no different from Edinburgh or Glasgow or Moody'sburn or Kirkintillock or whatever else might be. No different. Exactly the same. But these people believed that the gospel would work and could work and they came with the gospel. And what, what strikes me is that, you know, they had no award winning strategy. They were not apostles. The men that were driven out from Jerusalem because of persecution, they were not apostles. They had never been to a gospel coalition conference on church planting, ever. None of them. All they had was a message and the love of God in their hearts. That's all they had. And a belief that the gospel works. And I I just want to tell you one thing. If you take nothing else from my uh, long-winded sermon about Antioch, take this with you. The gospel still works. In the 21st century. And I believe that with all my heart. My associate pastor in Canada. I think I'm, I don't know if I told you the story. But it's, it's worth telling you again if I, if, I, if I did. He came back from the mission field in Tanzania. Where he and a group of people had. Uh, missionaries had planted a, a church amongst the Digo people. 100% Muslim people group in Tanzania. And they had planted a church there. And seen people come to the Lord. And. Uh, start to worship Jesus and it, it was incredible and he came back to Canada because of the education needs of his children and uh, so we were in uh, there and, and um, he hated being in our church office I know he hated it with a passion and one day a lady who was following up on unfilled Canadian census forms uh, bumped into this lady she knocked her door she saw that she was visibly ill she was going through chemotherapy she was dressed in her night robe or bathrobe whatever it's called her garden was a wilderness and uh, she saw that she was ill and she said to the lady you know I I belong to the church on the top of the hill you probably know about us it's a pretty active church in the community some of our men would love to come and cut your grass and just cut your hedge and help you over the course of the summer while you go through this chemotherapy would that be okay so she said sure that would be great so she came up to the church and said the lady needs a bit of help so we were into that kind of thing we wanted to connect with the community her associate pastor said I'm going to go and cut this grass and and cut this lady's hedge so during the summer all summer he went down once a week and he he tidied up her garden some weeks he cut her grass some weeks he he cut, cut her hedge she never spoke to him all she did was look out the window at him and at the end of the summer still going through chemotherapy she came out with a cup of juice and she gave it to him and she said why do you want to help me? why do you want to help me? And you know what he said to her? He said, because God has helped me. And if you give me a chance, I would love to just spend maybe two or three weeks sitting down with a very short Bible study explaining to you how much God has helped me. Would you be interested in that? She said, and he nearly fell off his feet. She said, yes, I would be interested in that. So for about four or five weeks he sat down and he just explained the message of the gospel with her. And on the fourth week she became a Christian. And there was nothing else to it other than that. 
just simply explaining the gospel. And I want to tell you, as you try to reach out to this community here in Marysburg, the gospel still works. The gospel still works. A young girl came from Czechoslovakia. The Czech Republic, actually, she came from. Grew up in an atheist home. Atheist parents. She came to our church one Sunday morning and uh, listened to a sermon. It wasn't a particularly good sermon. Um, and it wasn't a particularly evangelistic sermon. And after the sermon, I nearly fell off my feet. She asked me if she could talk to me. She wanted to give her heart to Jesus. And there was nothing else to it other than just explaining the gospel. The gospel still works. It transforms lives. It changes people. It did it in Antioch and it can do it in the 21st century. They had an exciting beginning. Here's the second thing. They had an encouraging visitor. So the church in Jerusalem is the mother church, right? It's the church that, where, where everything began. And they hear that God is doing something up in Antioch. Because it's kind of further up the coast. They hear that Gentiles are being converted and swept into the church. And they're not being circumcised. And this is a bit strange. And they want to find out what's going on in Antioch. So they decide that they will send a delegation down. And they send down this man called Barnabas. Barnabas... Uh, came from Cyprus and the men who founded the church in Antioch originally came from Cyprus so maybe they knew each other, I don't know but somehow the church in Jerusalem thought we should send this guy Barnabas down he could check it out, find out what's happening and down he goes to to Antioch to find out um, what's happening I, I personally think that Barnabas was the best person they could have sent because um I don't think everybody could have coped with the church at Antioch. I don't think some of the dyed in the wool folks from Jerusalem whose background and life had been in the Jewish temple could have coped with Antioch. See, these people didn't come from the Old Testament temple with the Torah in their hands. They walked out of the temple of Daphne into the Christian church with all of their baggage and all of their hang-ups. And the language that was being used in the church in Antioch was very different from the language that was being used in the church in in Jerusalem. Because they were just two different people groups coming from two different backgrounds. It was completely different. So how would Barnabas cope when he got there? Well, when he got there, we're told that he was clad. And he rejoiced when he saw what the grace of God had done. He rejoiced. His heart skipped a beat when he saw what God had done. He's just thrilled to the very core of his being. He was absolutely thrilled at what God had done in in Antioch. And uh, there's something, isn't there, very refreshing about um, meeting a new convert. My pastor was telling me about uh, a guy who got converted from the Gorbals in, in Glasgow. Now, I don't know a huge amount about the Gorbals in Glasgow. working not far from it at the minute. And, uh, and this story came to mind as I was driving through it. This guy he becomes a Christian from, from a, a non-Christian background, completely non-Christian background. First thing he does, he buys himself this huge, big, honking, Thompson chain reference Bible. And he comes to the Bible study and he's been reading this Bible. He bought this Bible, he's been reading, comes to the Bible study on Sunday night and he says to the pastor on the way in through the door, he says, Did you know 
that in this book there were three boys who were thrown into a fiery furnace and they came out and there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them did you know that was in this book (coughs) oh yes the pastor said I knew that was in the book the next week he came back and he said to the pastor on the way in did you know that in this book a man was thrown into a den of lions or a den full of lions and the angels kept their mouths shut all night did you know that was in this book oh yes the pastor said I knew that was in this book there's something incredibly fresh about new believers there's we spend a while with them and we get them all cluttered up and all Christianized but there's something very fresh refreshing about new Christians and that's exactly I think what really blessed Barnabas when he arrived in Antioch he was just thrilled when he saw what God had done in this place absolutely thrilled and what did he do when he got there he didn't give them a bunch of rules and say well you better stop eating pork and you better start doing this and this and this He didn't do that. What the text tells us is that he told them, he encouraged them uh, to remain true to the Lord. That's what he did. And the reason he did that was because he was a good man and he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was a good man. He wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a grumpy rascal. He wasn't a cantankerous individual. He was a good man. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit were hanging from the branches of the tree of his life. He was a good man. And he told them, stay true to the Lord. Because he wanted them to go on with Jesus. He knew that when they left church on a Sunday morning, the pool to go back would be huge. He knew that their friends would be phoning them up and saying to them, Oh, we know you do that Christian stuff on Sunday, but this is Friday. You can, you can take care of that on Sunday. This is Friday. Come with us. Let's go to the temple of Daphne and have a night of fun. Barnabas knew the pool to go back would be huge. So when he got there, he just said to them, Keep going on with Jesus. That was his advice. Just stay committed to Jesus. Never let Jesus go. Remain committed to him. That was what he wanted to say to these new converts when he got down. He wanted to be a Barnabas. A Barnabas. A friend uh, in the church that I pastored in Canada was telling me that he had a friend. You might think I've got a lot of friends. Um, But he had a friend who was in a church in San Francisco one night. And this hippie walked in. It was in the late 60s, early 70s. And this hippie walked in. A big Hawaiian shirt, flower bracelet on a necklace on, big bell bottoms, bare feet. And he wanders into church and he's just become a Christian and he wants to meet with other Christians. And, and uh, it's, it, was a, it was a Baptist church and I was a Baptist pastor, so I can say this, no one else can say this, but it was a stiff Baptist church. They were all suited and booted and dressed to the 90s. And, and this guy comes in and he's dressed like a hippie, bare feet. And he comes in and, he, and, and no one will give him a seat. And he thinks to himself, well, I'll I'll make my way up the aisle and surely someone will budge up and give me a seat. No one would budge up and give him a seat. People were titancing, oh my, look at what's coming into church now. This is awful. (laughs) So you know what he did? He came to the front of the church and he sat right square in the center aisle with his legs folded, waiting for the pastor to begin his message. 
And then one of the deacons at the back of the church began to make his way along the back and down the centre aisle. And everybody's nudging each other saying, oh, Jimmy will fix him out. Because Jimmy works out of the gym. Jimmy will fix him out. You know what Jimmy did when he came down the aisle? He shook his hand and sat cross-legged on the, in the centre of the aisle with him. Because Jimmy wanted to be a Barnabas in his life. Jimmy knew that when he left church that night, the pool to go back would be immense. And he wanted, out of 300 people sitting in church, Jimmy was the only person who wanted to be a Barnabas, who so desperately wanted this person to go on with Jesus. I've been around a lot of churches and I've bumped into a lot of Christians and I get to trundle around and show up at lots of meetings in my role. I've met a lot of people who could cause a Barney. But I haven't met many Barnabases. And I long for more Barnabases. People who are refreshing. People who are encouraging. People that you long to just sit beside in church. Because you know that when this... Well, you want to hear them sing. Because that in itself just does your heart good. And you want to talk to them after the service is over. Because you know that what they have to say will just be a blessing to you. And I thank God for the Barnabases in my life. But the challenge for me this morning is, what about being a Barnabas, Robert? And that's the challenge for you. What about being a Barnabas in the life of someone else and just encouraging them to go on with Jesus? Well, we could say a whole lot more about Barnabas. That's a dynamic leadership. Um, I'll be as quick as I can. I'm sorry. What is the time? 12.20. We're good yet, are we? Well, anyway, I don't know if we're good or not, actually, but a dynamic leadership. Here's very quickly. So, Paul is going full tilt in the ministry of this church on his own, preaching, running Bible studies, doing Christianity Explorer courses, um, serving in the coffee shop during the... He's just going full steam ahead. And he gets to... Or, or, or Barnabas is going full steam ahead in the church, in the ministry of this church. And he gets to a place where he says, I'm going to run myself into the ground if I don't get a little bit of help. And I, I, Moses, well, he had a ton of helpers, didn't he? How many helpers did Moses have? Some like 70 helpers? Jesus had 12 disciples. Couldn't I get some help to help me in the ministry of this church? So he began to think about, well, who could I get to help me? I know someone that they packed off from Jerusalem 8, 10 years ago. We haven't heard anything about him since. No one wanted anything to do with the Apostle Paul. And uh, as he would later become known. And Barnabas decided, I'll go to Tarsus and I will tell Saul of Tarsus, come and help me in the work of this church in Antioch. (coughs) So it was Barnabas who traveled 100 miles north to the city of Tarsus, a university town, and knocked on on Saul's door and says, listen, I've been involved in the ministry of a church. And uh, I need someone who will come and compliment my gifts. I'm I'm a personal worker. I'm an encourager. I like to encourage people. I need someone who will provide systematic teaching. And, uh, well, he didn't say this to him, but you will go on and write the book of Romans and Philippians and Thessalonians. And you would be a brilliant person to come and just provide systematic, solid, biblical teaching week after week. I need you to come. And I'm sure there was an interesting discussion. Oh, I'm not sure that I'm the right person, Barnabas. 
I've been involved in persecuting the church. No one likes me. Don't you know that? They packed me off from Jerusalem. People are afraid of me. I'm not sure I'm the right person. Barnabas said to him, you are the right person. And he brought him back to Antioch. And he gave him his first break in ministry. Which I think is amazing. We would never, potentially we would never have heard of the Apostle Paul had it not been for Barnabas giving him a break in ministry. But Barnabas gave him a break in ministry and they came down together and uh, worked together and for a whole year and were told that hundreds, huge numbers of people came to faith over the course of that year. What a team, don't you think? What an amazing team, Barnabas and Saul. I mean, I, I had uh, worked with a team of young guys in, in, in the churches I've been involved and I used to love to listen to them preach because I, I know that they had poured their hearts over a message and they would come on Sunday and then they would just offload onto us and we'd listen to it and absorb it and take it in. It was just like, it was just like a feast for me to sit and listen to those guys. But what would it not have been like to listen to the Apostle Paul preach on a Sunday, Sunday after Sunday? But not only is there two of them in the ministry of this church now, when we popped over to Acts chapter 13, what we discovered there was that there was actually five of them. Is it four of them or five of them involved in the ministry of this church? Because the two of them got to a place where they said, well, we can't do this all on our own. So let's pull in some more. So they pulled in a few others, Lucius and Manaean, and I think there's another one mentioned there. Five of them now involved in the ministry of this church. Not five deacons serving practically. Five people engaged in the ministry of this church in Antioch. Because this is a church that has a dynamic leadership. This is a church where the leaders have got vision. And as I trundle around from place to place, I just feel, and I could be wrong, but I just long that there was a little bit more vision. A little bit more vision. People just sitting in, in, in buildings with four people, and, and it's fine, but I just, you know, I just wonder, where is the vision? Where is the vision in the 21st century? I long for a new generation of folks like George Verwers, who will trust God for the finances to put two ships in the ocean, taking the gospel to port after port. Who will mobilize a young generation to take the gospel to their peers all across Europe. I long for people with just a little bit of vision. I long for a new generation of Brother Andrews. Who will fill their Volkswagen cars full of Bible and Bibles and go to the borders of closed countries and, and, and pray before they get there. Lord, shut the eyes of the border guards so that they don't see my Bibles. And pull up and roll down the window and the guard says, what have you got on board? And he says, my car is full of Bibles. And the guard looks at him and says, I go on you joker. And on he goes with his car full of Bibles. Don't you just long for people with a little bit of vision? Here is a church and they've got amazing vision. And I think a lot of it has to do with Barnabas. The last thing with this we're finished. Not only have they got a dynamic leadership but they've got an outward focus. A prophet called Agabus had come down from Jerusalem. They didn't have the New Testament in the sense that we have it. Apostles were showing up now and again. What what they had uh, were prophets who were bringing the word of God to them. And so this prophet brings this message that there's going to be a severe famine. 
and uh, that it will be particularly difficult for the people of Judah and in or Judea and Jerusalem. And these people in Antioch, now just think about this for one minute. These people in Antioch, he didn't, the prophet Agabus didn't say, and you should take up a collection or you should gather up 55,000 loaves and send it down to the folks in Jerusalem. He didn't say that. He just said, there's going to be a famine. That's all he said. And the folks in Antioch who had come to Christ from the temple of Daphne, who were Gentiles through and through, who had never met the folks in Jerusalem, they said to themselves, if we have the same spiritual father as these people, and these people will have no food, and we have all all of this food, our father up there would expect us to take some of our food and share it with them. He would expect us to take some of our resources to help alleviate their suffering. And... uh, They took up a collection and they sent it to Jerusalem to alleviate the extremity and the poverty. You know, I've got five children. I know that you'd never believe that I'm so young looking. But I have five children. Um, My wife and I have five children. They know that if one of them was in trouble, I would expect the other four to help that one in trouble out. They know that. And they know that if they came home and I found out that one of them was in trouble and the other four did nothing to help, they know that I would be grieved and incredibly upset with them. Because they're a family. They're brothers and sisters. They've got the same parents. I want them to look out for each other. And somehow, somehow... I have this belief that God expects us to do something to alleviate the suffering of people who are living in extremity. And I've read the books and I believe that we are committed to the gospel first and foremost. I believe all of that. But I just believe at the end of, the t- end of time, maybe just maybe Jesus will say to us, I was hungry, you never fed me. And I was thirsty and you never came with a drink. And I was in prison and you never visited me. And I was walking about in rags and you never provided clothing. And we'll say, when? When? And he'll say, inasmuch as you didn't do it to the least, the most insignificant of believers. You didn't do it to me because the way you treated them was the way you treated me because I was in them. Inextricably linked to them and with them. And the way you treated them was the way that you treated me. Now, I don't have all of the answers in relation to the third world. And the truth is, I've got more questions than answers, that's the truth. But I just know, I can't walk away from the challenge to do something. Something. These folks in Antioch decided, we better do something. And they sent a gift down to Jerusalem and all I want to say to you this is an exciting church to come and preach uh, in and at and I I love it coming here it's great I just want to say to you the great churches of the world have always been churches with an outward focus they've been missionary focused churches and sometimes I go around from place to place and it's all so terribly introspective it's all about what's happening on the inside but I, I just want to encourage you The great churches of the world have always had an outward vision. A focus for more than just what's happening within our four walls. They've had a vision for taking the gospel to the world. And somehow, I hope that God gives you a vision uh, for 
his, the work of his kingdom across the face of this earth. So there it is. The four things were simple. There was an exciting beginning. A group of people driven out from Jerusalem because of persecution arrived in Antioch and said, we're not just going to blend in here. We're going to make a difference for Jesus and make a difference they did. Then there was an, ex- an encouraging visitor. Barnabas arrived. And he didn't give them a bunch of rules and regulations. He just encouraged them to go on with Jesus. What a blessing Barnabas was. And then there was a dynamic leadership. It's Saul and Barnabas and then there's five of them. This is a church on the march. This is not stale and static. This is a church on the march. And then it was a church with an outward vision. They said, there's folks, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that we've never met, come from a different background to us, are suffering. Our father would want us to do something to help them, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? And, And they did something to help. And So that's the challenge of God's word for all of us. Thank you so much for listening.